Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. On this episode of Newt's World, every president prior to Ronald Reagan viewed the Cold War as a great power conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. Reagan saw it differently. To him, the conflict was a battle of ideas, along with the great power competition. As tensions with Russia rise again over the war with Ukraine, and as the U.S. faces competition with China ruled by the Communist Party, there's a lot we can learn from how Reagan successfully handled the Soviet system and its leadership. Here to talk about his new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, William M. Bowden. He is Executive Director and William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clemens Center for National Security and Associate Professor of Public Policy and History at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, both at the University of Texas at Austin. Prior to that, he worked in senior positions with the State Department and the National Security Council in the George W. Bush administration. Well, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your background that set the stage for you to write this. Sure. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona in the 1970s and 80s, really considered myself a child of the Cold War. Tucson has a major Air Force base. At the time, was the mountains surrounding Tucson were filled with Titan missile silos. And so even as a kid and then at a high schooler, I was very aware of the Cold War, the Soviet threat. You know, Tucson was very high on the Kremlin's targeting list. And I appreciated President Reagan from seeing him on the evening news and things like that. But he was a very, very distant figure. 
So then by the time I started my policy career and then my academic career in the 1990s and early 2000s, we had seen the peaceful end of the Cold War. We had the new challenges, of course, of the war on terrorism. A real theme for my career all along was trying to draw on the lessons of history for current national security challenges. That's what I worked on in government, in strategic planning on the National Security Council staff. That's one of the themes of my teaching now at the University of Texas. And so when I started this book, it seemed like enough time had passed that we could take a fresh look at the Reagan record. You know, you as a fellow historian appreciate the importance of archives and so many archival documents had been released, but there were still a number of people who had worked for Reagan who are alive for interviews. And I think a lot of the partisan passions of the day had cooled somewhat so we could do a more fresh, balanced assessment. So that's how my policy and academic background led into doing this book. You went from Tucson to Stanford and then on to get a PhD from Yale. I'm just curious, what was your dissertation? My dissertation was on early American Cold War policy and particularly the religious influences on Truman and Eisenhower. So they developed what I call it a theology of containment because the Cold War, of course, was not just between rival political or economic systems, but the official atheism of the Soviet Union of communism and then a belief in Judeo-Christian values in the West. So in a recent foreign affairs article entitled The Fight for the Future of Republican Foreign Policy, you wrote that in the run-up to 2024, the GOP should look to Reagan. What did you mean by that? I think that President Reagan was our last unambiguously successful two-term Republican president. I say that, of course, as a proud alum of the George W. Bush administration. I think we got many things right there, but also you know, a number of things wrong. And so first, just as a matter of political and policy success, I think President Reagan has a tremendous record that we can learn from. But also when you look at our current geopolitical challenges, especially with Russia and particularly the threat from China, we should look to the last time we had a president who successfully waged and won a great power competition against a nuclear armed communist superpower in Eurasia. It was a Soviet Union then and it's China now, of course, with its partner, Russia. So there's some, I think, pretty direct continuity and parallels between Reagan's day and our own. The assertion in your article that the China challenge points to other factors that offer hope for Republican internationalism and that the challenge of the Chinese Communist Party virtually guarantees that Republicans will remain committed to the international activity, which I agree with. In fact, as you may know, Speaker-designate McCarthy has already indicated very clearly that there will be a select committee on China looking at the totality of the Chinese challenge at every level. But Reagan inherited what had grown up over a very long period of time as sort of an elaborate bureaucracy of dealing with the Cold War on a global basis. And yet he very decisively changed its focus and its direction, which I think was kind of amazing. He did. It was really remarkable. He had inherited the detente framework, of course, that Nixon and Ford and Henry Kissinger had developed. And then, frankly, Jimmy Carter had largely continued. And then around that, there was that entire bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy was focused on managing the Cold War and managing relations with the Soviet Union. And Reagan wanted to win it. That was, I think, the decisive strategic difference there. And so that's why he and his team, I think, did a pretty effective job of reorienting American strategy, saying that they taunt had been designed to, for a temporary time to lower tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union, but it instead it had turned into this permanent framework of losing as slowly as possible. And that, of course, is still losing. And so for Reagan, he envisioned a world beyond the Cold War. He envisioned a world beyond Soviet communism and pretty effectively turned the great ship of state, the mass of the bureaucracy in, in that direction, not without, of course, a lot of friction and resistance. 
I was in Congress for those eight years. So I had some activity and some involvement with the key players. When I was researching the book, it was fun to find a number of letters from a junior congressman, Newt Gingrich, to Ronald Reagan, again, urging a strong line against the Soviets, urging more support for the Contras, urging support for Taiwan. So yes, having studied your earlier letters and correspondence with him, I can attest to that. The research you did, you're at a point where a lot of documents are being released, and yet also at a point where many of the original players are still alive. And I noticed that before he passed away, that you had a chance to talk with George Schultz, for example, who's a remarkable source on Reagan. Yeah, he really was. And it was sadly, and this is obviously just the state of the human condition, seven of the people I interviewed have since died. And this was just in the last few years. So Schultz, Bud McFarlane, Frank Carlucci, Colin Powell, others. But it was very special to be able to interview so many old Reagan hands and hear their stories and their insights, especially with the passage of time. When you looked at all those things, were there things in the archives and in the interviews that changed your opinion? Yes, there were. And I started the project with a pretty favorable assessment of Reagan and his record. So, you know, I certainly want to make that bias clear. Obviously, all of us have biases, but still, I was not deeply versed in it. And one of the ways that my mind was changed is I went into the project with an impression of Reagan having set a strategic vision, but not been very involved on the details of his Cold War policies. And in some areas, lesser priority issues, he wasn't very involved in the details. That's true. But what I saw is that when it came to relations with the Soviets and the Cold War, Reagan was deeply involved in the details. I mean, he would write a lot of his own talking points. He was very involved in the writing of his speeches. Before every summit meeting with Gorbachev, he would spend weeks reading thousands of pages of briefing books, writing detailed notes on them. He liked to maintain a public image of being a little more detached from things. And I think that was strategic misdirection, cultivating the art of wanting people to underestimate him. But in fact, he knew the brief very well, especially when it came to his strategy towards the Soviet Union, because he cared so much about it. And, you know, as a chief executive, he was setting priorities, and that was one of his big priorities. So that was one area where my mind was changed, which is appreciating how much more attentive to detail Reagan was on the really important issues. I was always very struck that people misunderstood that Reagan had an ability to select what mattered. And if it didn't matter, he delegated it. And he was quite cheerful. He figured any outcome was acceptable. You know, my favorite example, which I'm sure Schultz talked to you about, that Reagan decided he wanted to say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And that he thought it was a strategic comment that would have profound effect. And the State Department editor took it out. And Reagan hand wrote it back in and sent it over, and he took it out a second time. And Reagan, according to Schultz, Reagan called Schultz and said, Georgie, you need to tell him I am the president. He is not. It stays in. And as late as the ride to the speech site, his chief of staff was trying to talk him out of using the line. I mean, the entire senior bureaucracy was opposed to saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down the wall. But Reagan thought it would have a dramatic psychological impact. And of course, he was right. Now, one of the things which surprised me, and I thought I knew a fair amount about this, you unearth the degree to which Reagan learned from Dwight Eisenhower. As you describe it, Eisenhower had a substantial impact on Reagan. 
It's a really remarkable story. And as you said, one that had not been told much before. And it's certainly a surprising find in my own research. I do want to give credit to two people who helped clue me into this. The first is Tom Reed, who had helped manage Reagan's first 1966 gubernatorial campaign and later served on his NSC staff. And the other is Gene Copelson, an author in the Northeast who had also done a lot of work. So very briefly, Eisenhower, of course, leaves office in 1961. It's now ex-president and he retires to Palm Springs there in Southern California. And in 1960, 64, when Reagan gives his iconic A Time for Choosing speech supporting the Goldwater candidacy, Eisenhower watches that on TV and thinks, this guy is a remarkable political talent. And so, and he's in my new state of California for Eisenhower. So Eisenhower reaches out to Reagan and says, hey, listen, come meet with me at my place here in Palm Springs. Let's talk. And Eisenhower encourages Reagan to run for governor of California, which, of course, he does successfully in 1966. And then, in a way, becomes Reagan's first foreign policy mentor, if you will. And for Eisenhower, some key themes that he imprinted in Reagan, which Reagan really imbibed, were first the importance of maintaining a strong economy, a vibrant economy as a source of national strength, and especially, of course, to fund the defense budget. And then an appreciation for the relationship between military force and diplomacy and the strategic outcomes that you want. And Eisenhower, of course, is very critical of LBJ's mismanagement of the Vietnam War and the gradual escalation that was not enough to win, but enough to get way too many Americans killed. So over Reagan's first few years as governor, he would meet regularly with Eisenhower. They'd go golfing together. They'd have you know long three or four hour lunches talking about foreign policy. And so I can see a lot of Eisenhower's worldview in Reagan. And of course, when Reagan then does become president, he puts a bust of Eisenhower in the Oval Office. He puts a portrait of him in the Roosevelt Room. And if you look at Reagan's speeches, and I read almost all of them, Eisenhower is easily the former president that Reagan cites the most often, more than George Washington, more than FDR, more than others you might have thought of. And so there's a very direct, immediate and substantial influence between the two. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. 
As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Now, you draw a pretty sharp comparison between he and Nixon, which I think is very, very interesting. Would you talk a little bit about how you see the almost competitive parallel in how they viewed the world and how they tried to operate? Yeah, sure. And it's again, the Reagan-Nixon relationship is a fascinating one because at times they're fierce rivals with very different worldviews. But then other times, especially once Reagan becomes president, they forge a certain mutual respect and even friendship, but still never overcome those differences. For Republicans, you know, I'll speak as one myself here. We need to appreciate that Reagan and Nixon together dominated Republican presidential politics for about 40 years, from 1952 on up through 1988, at least one of them was playing a major role, was either on the ballot or playing a major role in shaping the ballot. And, you know, they have a common background. They're both children of underprivileged families in the Midwest who then migrate out to California for new opportunity. Both have problematic relations with their dads and then very pious and loving and nurturing mothers. And of course, find their careers and their voice in California. But when it comes to foreign policy, they have differences. Nixon, of course, a master at foreign policy, but still had more of a status quo view of the Cold War, saw relations with the Soviet Union as something to be managed. He certainly did not envision the possibility of defeating the Soviet Union. He was indifferent to values questions, to things like human rights. For Nixon, it was all about managing the power relations. And of course, as we've talked, Reagan had a much more transformative view of seeing the Cold War as a battle of ideas ideas in Soviet communism as an idea to be defeated. They also had differences over Asia. You know, both were very focused on Asia, but when Nixon looked to Asia, he was very much pursuing a China first policy. He saw China as the key to U.S. policy in Asia, whereas Reagan looks to Asia and sees Japan first and sees our alliance with Japan as a fellow democracy, as we know, one of the world's leading economies as the key to Asia. So once Reagan becomes president, having run against the Nixon view of foreign policy for the previous decade. And of course, Nixon is you know living in disgrace in New York after having left office, resigned because of the Watergate scandal. Nixon starts reaching out to Reagan, starts writing him regular letters, giving him political advice, policy advice. And Reagan is a pretty magnanimous person. He sets aside his previous differences with Nixon, says, all right, I want to take advice from this guy. I'll take advice from anyone who can give it. I'll make up my own mind on what I believe. And so Nixon does play a role in helping encourage Reagan towards eventually doing those summit meetings with Gorbachev, as he does. But then they have another big break over the INF Treaty, where you know Reagan has this vision for defeating the Soviet Union and eliminating nuclear weapons. And Nixon, being much more status quo, does not want to give up nuclear weapons. And so they have a final big rift over that in Reagan's last couple of years in office. Anyway, it's a fascinating relationship. If I remember correctly, even though they disagreed a great deal about foreign policy, 
Reagan refused to break with Nixon over Watergate. He simply wouldn't abandon Nixon. That's sort of his instinct about how you deal with allies. Yeah, exactly. Reagan was very loyal. And of course, he was very loyal to his friends, but also very loyal to the Republican Party. And he really was a party man. You know, that's why, we, of course, we have Reagan's famous 11th commandment of thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. The meeting at Reykjavik, where Gorbachev comes in and has been told basically that our technological advantage is exactly as NSC 68 had projected back in 1950, that our engineering and science and technological advantages were now beginning to outstrip the Soviets to such a degree that they literally could not tell Gorbachev whether or not they could cope with things because they knew they didn't understand them. And so Gorbachev comes in and basically offers to give up virtually everything if Reagan will give up the Strategic Defense Initiative or Star Wars. And in the end, Reagan just says no. And it's clear also by then that Reagan is now dominant. What was your take on that event? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, all of Reagan and Gorbachev's summit meetings are iconic and important, but Reykjavik is the truly pivotal one. And that's where I think we can really say the Cold War began to end, the Soviet Union, you know, began to breathe its dying gas. Because exactly as you say, that is when Gorbachev realized he could not win. The Soviet economy was falling apart. They couldn't sustain their defense spending. But this is where, again, as you pointed out, very important part of Reagan's strategy on the defense modernization and build up, it was not just about outspending the Soviets, it was about outsmarting them. And Reagan, of course, as a Californian, you know, Silicon Valley had been a part of his constituency when he was governor. He had an innate belief in American innovation and America's technological superiority. And so he had presided over this next generation of weapons platforms across the full spectrum of American force projection, quieter submarines, better radar evading aircraft, the B-1, the B-2, better tanks, better tank killing aircraft, so much so that no matter how many more tanks or planes or missiles the Soviets built, they couldn't keep pace with American technology. And so that's why it was much more than just an economic race. And Gorbachev realized that. And the apex of this is, as you mentioned, the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Reagan's really visionary hope for a ballistic missile shield. You know, critics said, oh, this is technologically impossible and it'll never happen. But that didn't really matter because Gorbachev feared that it could happen. Gorbachev so respected America's innovation capacity that he thought SDI could happen. And he knew then that the entire game game would be up. And so even though critics at the time reviled the Reykjavik summit and said it was a failure, you know, Sam Donaldson was of ABC News was particularly vicious towards Reagan and saying he'd been disgraced there. It may have looked like a short-term loss because they didn't come to an agreement, but that is when Gorbachev realized the game was up. And that's why he, Gorbachev came back to Reagan a few months later and said, okay, I agree, let's do the INF Treaty. We will give up all of our SS-20 intermediate range missiles, which the Soviets were targeting all the European capitals with at the time. Did you have a similar sense that Reagan's skills as a negotiator were dramatically underestimated? Oh, absolutely. And this is where you rightly point out an important part of his background was decades earlier when he'd been leading the Screen Actors Guild and was a lead labor negotiator in Hollywood, he had realized he has a real knack for negotiating. He had a very intuitive understanding of other people. He just wanted to get in the room with them. He had a great belief, rightly so, in his own power to persuade. From the day he was sworn in as president in January of 1981, he'd been wanting to meet with a Soviet leader. But as you pointed out, they kept dying on him three in a row in just three years. And there's another really important part of Reagan's strategy, which relates to his relation with Gorbachev. From the get-go, from when Reagan first became president, part of his strategy of pressuring the Soviet Union wasn't just to weaken it and collapse it. It was to pressure the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader that he could negotiate with. 
So, you know, there's debates among scholars about who deserves more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War, Reagan or Gorbachev. You know, they're both very important, but I think we have to give the edge to Reagan because for four years, he was pressuring the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader. And eventually the Politburo does just that in selecting Gorbachev in March of 1985. And that's why Reagan was so eager to meet with Gorbachev. I titled that chapter in my book, Waiting for Gorbachev, because he had been waiting for four years for a Soviet leader he could negotiate with. And that's why Reagan recognized you know, earlier than most others that Gorbachev was a genuine reformer. Finally, this ties back to an important comment you made earlier about Reagan insisting on putting in Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall in the speech, which again is another titanic moment in the Cold War. One of the reasons that the State Department and NSC staff kept opposing it is they thought, you're going to push Gorbachev too far. Gorbachev is already weak and embattled. You know, we shouldn't put him on the spot like this. We shouldn't humiliate him like this. What they didn't appreciate is the person in the American government who had spent more time personally with Mikhail Gorbachev than anyone else was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan knew Gorbachev better than anyone else in the American government. And Reagan had a very good sense of just how far he could push Gorbachev and that he could say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And he could throw down that gauntlet to him. And he was right. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, They're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. 
What is it both that the Republicans in Congress and then second, that the Republican presidential candidates should take from your research and from your understanding? The first is a real commitment to principles and values. This is, the, I think, the key to understanding and appreciating Reagan, why he was able to be such a transformative president. As I've put it elsewhere, good leaders, good presidents will manage a situation they're given. Great leaders, great presidents will transform a situation and will envision a better future. And he really did. And it's because he held fast to a number of principles. He believed very much in American leadership. And that's not just a cliche. Remember, he's a child of the 1930s and 40s. So the two formative experiences for him in his younger years had been the Great Depression and then World War II, of course, caused by you know protectionism and isolationism, which he was very opposed to. And so he believed that the hard lessons of history were America is a better place and a more secure place if America is leading the free world. Second, he really believed in allies. Again, you know, this was key, of course, to our victory in World War II, but especially key to our victory in the Cold War. He knew that allies could be a pain. He knew that they could engage in free riding, but he also saw them as a key source of American strength. And in contrast with the Soviet Union, which didn't have any real allies, it had its coerced vassal states in the Warsaw Pact, whereas our allies in NATO and in Asia had chosen to be with us. And then just an example of how Reagan was able to work with allies, when he became president, of course, we had big trade tensions with Japan. But we also had the problem of Japan free riding on our security umbrella and not doing enough to fund its own defense. And Reagan didn't come out to publicly humiliate Japan or threaten to withdraw American troops. Instead, he built a close friendship with Prime Minister Nakasone, the Japanese leader. And he said, listen, we are committed to you in the alliance and we need you to do your part for us. And over the next eight years, Japan tripled its defense spending, tripled it, phenomenal increase because Nakasone believed in the United States and the alliance. Another part on the values is Reagan very much believed in the value of freedom. And again, this is not just a cheap talking point. He was fervent in supporting political and religious dissidents behind the Iron Curtain. This is why he forges a close friendship with Pope John Paul II, the Jewish refuseniks who were in the gulag in the Soviet Union, just merely because they wanted to emigrate to Israel, Christian pastors and priests. No one had a more fierce advocate than Ronald Reagan because he believed in human dignity. He believed in freedom. And he also believed that this is a key vulnerability of the Soviet Union. Any country or society, Soviet Union then, communist China, Putin's Russia now, that has to torment and persecute its own people and won't allow them to freely emigrate or freely speak, that shows a weakness and a vulnerability there. And Reagan really believed that. And I think that's another principle we should recapture as well. I think you have done a very important contribution to the development of an emerging national security policy for the United States, which has to be, I think, profoundly rethought in the modern period. And I think Republicans have to offer a coherent and clear vision of what our role in the world is and how we can both be safe, but also help lead the planet to a future that's more inclusive and more democratic and more open. And I want to thank you for joining me. I think President Reagan had a remarkable impact on how we look at our adversaries and our foreign policy. I think it's very cool that you did this research and you put it all together. As somebody who actually lived through it, I think this book is a major contribution. And I think for people trying to understand what we have to do in the current situation, studying Reagan is a remarkably good starting point. We're going to have a link to your book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink, on our show page at NewtsWorld.com. And I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your ideas and your insights. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Speaker. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you to my guest, William M. Bowden. You can link to his new book, The Peacemaker, 
Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the World on the Brink on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you.